The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2014, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This recording was from Friday, May 9th. Educational Salon, Barrel Aging with Jim Cook, featuring Jim Cook from Boston Beer. I love this session. You know, we have a total of three sessions in here during the, uh, the course of the night. And everyone always looks so fresh during this first one. You, you folks are ready to go. The, it, the third group just has a totally different look to them. Uh, my name is Tom McCormick. I'm the executive director of the Craft Brewers Association, um, which is in California. Anybody here from California? Oh, yeah, great, okay. And I'm here on behalf of the Brewers Association. The Brewers Association is the national trade association representing the about 4,800 craft breweries in the United States now, which is pretty amazing. And the Brewers Association puts on this great event, uh, Savor. This is the seventh annual one. So it's uh, one of my favorite events of the entire year. I'd like to say thanks to our sponsor, which is Ray's um, Beverage Company. And just a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, the first one is that you will be using that, the single glass in front of you for uh, each of the different beers. And so you'll just want to rinse that glass and pour it into the bucket uh, before the next beer comes along or as the next beer comes along. So just that one glass uh, that you will be using. And the servers will be coming through, and it goes pretty quick because there's one server per each row, but the servers will be coming through to pour the beer for you. And um, wait before you try that beer, and that first beer is really, really hard to wait. So have patience, but uh, Jim will be cueing you and letting you know to when to try that beer so that we can all try it together. Um, Jim's going to do something a little bit different and open it up to questions uh, ahead of time to kind of see what your questions and what your interests are. And this session is being recorded by craftbeerradio.com. This session will be available for you to hear as well as all the sessions here tonight will be available to hear on craftbeer.com, which is a great website, all things craft beer. It's a incredible website, but this session will be available for you to listen to um, at any time at craftbeer.com. So with that, I, I think everybody knows Jim Cook, but in case you don't, I'm going to turn it over to the founder, the owner, the president, the brewmaster, all things Boston Beer Company, Jim Cook. Thank you, Tom. And Tom has certainly done more for craft brewing uh, in California and in the rest of the country than just about anybody else. So it's an honor to follow you. Um, and uh, this is entitled uh, Barrel Aging, which is quite uh, an interesting, complex subject that has lots of different elements. And um, before I like launch into a 40-minute monologue, uh, which could be extremely boring, uh, even if it's punctuated by serious drinking. Um, let me uh, do something a little weird, but open it up for questions first, so that I get an idea of, you know, 
why you're here, what you want to know, what you think would be interesting for me to talk about. Um, I had two suggestions so far, which is uh, to talk about the history of barrel aging here in the United States, and I'll expand that to you know, a, a broader history of barrel aging because it really encompasses multiple uh, brewing techniques and, and skeins of flavor addition, which are quite different one from the other. So it's not a single, you know, unitary uh, brewing technique like, I don't know, croisoning or, you know, dry hopping or something like that. It it's, uh, has multiple historical skeins and multiple impacts on the beer. So that was, uh, those were two things that were uh, suggested. Other, tell me what else should we talk about? Yes. Yep. And some of the Good question. Because, yeah, there's a whole range of stuff. You know, I mean, people have gone from, uh, you know, like Tabasco barrels uh, off of uh, McElhaney Island uh, to, you know, cognac and port and so forth. So that's a very good question. Um, other, yes? Yeah, they're, I mean, it's 53 gallons yeah. at a time. Yeah. You might have more of them, but it's, it's 53 gallons at a time. You port, you might go up to the 60s, so that, okay, okay. Challenges, size, et cetera, yep, yes? How do you do the trial and error? How do you kind of know what they're going to Yep, yep. Others? Yes, sir. How do you control the biology of the common motherfucker? Uh, we'll taste some of it, and you can see. Yep. Other questions about, yes? Uh, just for inspection, how best to avoid them. Not only in commercial settings, but also in home use settings. Yeah. Or embrace them, um, depending. Yeah. Other questions or areas? Okay, yes. Yep. It's a little bit of both. Other questions? All right, well, let me, so this, this is helpful. It gives me an idea of the level of concern, you know, and the, I mean, you guys obviously know what you're talking about too. So um, that makes it much more interesting to address an educated audience. So um, let me just start by kind of giving an overview of, you know, aging beer and wood, uh, generally known as barrel aging. And, uh, Beer has been aged in wood for a really long time, obviously, for uh, certainly uh, over a thousand years. And uh, for you know, most of the time that beer was made, tanks were made out of some kind of wood, uh, generally staves you know, by coopers with uh, various 
iron rings. Some of them were just you know, massive wooden tanks. I'm sure some of you have read about uh, the Great Porter Flood in London when I, I, I think they were like 2,000 barrel wooden tanks uh, that ruptured, flooded the streets of London outside the brewery and drowned a whole bunch of people in Porter uh, in the first half of the 18th century. And, uh, and that kind of persisted. My, my father was a brewmaster uh, here in the US and uh, well into the 50s, a lot of the, you know, the very small regional breweries were still aging beer in wooden tanks. Um, but it was quite a different technique than what you would see uh, in the, you know, the big wooden tons, the Fedras or Fudras, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, because for most of that history, uh, the tanks were lined with pitch because you really didn't want the beer to contact the wood. The wood would harbor lots of bacteria and you wanted a relatively clean surface in there where stuff couldn't grow. So brewers would typically line those, those wooden tanks that you see in the breweries uh, even 60 years ago with pitch because that pitch would not allow any bacteria to grow. Um, I think it was because of the, like the turpentine and the other content of it. And uh, typically brewers would have to replace that like once a year. My dad tells me stories about, I mean, if you ever have a crappy day at work, you can imagine this. Um, but uh, in his time, uh, it's usually like January and February where things were slow, they would empty the tanks, and you would get into one of those, often climbing in through the little manways, uh, in there with uh, a whole bunch of sticks of, of pitch and a blowtorch and essentially a putty knife and repair that uh, tank. And, and um, it's not the least bit romantic because you know, you're in this big thing, maybe close to the size of this room in the complete dark with like one light bulb hanging on one of those utility lights. And of course, the cellar is probably 38 degrees and 100% humidity and you're in there all day. So uh, just stripping uh, and reapplying pitch with a blowtorch. Um, so if you ever have a bad day at work, you didn't have to spend eight hours in a big uh, dark tank uh, at 40 degrees and 100% humidity freezing your butt off. Um, so that was uh, some of putting beer in wood, but it really was quite different from what we do now uh, with barrel aging. And I would uh, sort of break it into um, you know, two different techniques um, with maybe four different uh, purposes and effects. And the two different techniques, one of them very traditional, you know, it, it devolved into being principally Belgian um, because their flavor profile could accept uh, a whole lot of, you know, uh, what the rest of the world considers off flavors. And that was, you know, uh, aging beer in tanks that had raw wood. 
that didn't have pitch or anything like that uh, in them. And uh, to me, there were two big things that, th that that does. And if you come to our brewery in Boston, in our barrel room, we have, uh, uh, like in the barrel room in Boston, we have three uh, of these. They're about 120 barrel uh, big wooden tanks. So uh, that makes them, whatever it is, uh, a little under 4,000 gallon tanks. They are Hungarian oak. Uh, we brought them from Europe. Uh, it's a pretty cool process. You actually, you get them in a container. You know, they're knocked down. Um, they disassemble them in Europe, and then, uh, you know, and you get the hoops and uh, the, the little turnbuckles on them. And uh, I, I think this is pretty common. I know for us, uh, they came over with these Portuguese coopers, who are weird dudes. I mean, some of them are like five feet, no matter what direction you measure them. Top to bottom, front to back, side to side. Uh, and they go around the world reassembling these big wooden tanks. Uh, and, you know, and it's quite an art getting them exactly tight because there's essentially no caulking or anything in between the wood. The only thing that I've seen them use, their sort of their secret uh, technique, is they come with these uh, huge sheaths of like 12 foot pieces of some kind of straw. And they put the straw in between the staves uh, to gasket it. But that's it, that's how they seal it, with this weird straw. Uh, and then, and of course, the way it works is, you know, uh, until they're, they're wet, they don't expand. So they have to assemble them and keep them stable uh, and then fill them. And then they expand and they become watertight. There's nothing, it's just the expansion of the wood that seals those tanks, that and that weird straw. Um, and in those, to me, there's two important things that the wood does that you wouldn't get in a typical stainless steel tank. Um, one of them is it harbors all kinds of organisms that will live in and on that wood. So for instance, uh, for our uh, big barrels in Boston, and we have a similar barrel room in Ohio with I think 10 or 11 of these things. Uh, in um, those rooms, uh, both of our breweries are quite old. Uh, our brewery in Boston uh, dates back to the late 1860s. So whatever that is, nearly 100 and, uh, 150 years of brewing. So there to populate uh, these barrels, we basically, you know, opened it up to what is in the air, um, went around searching for organisms that have lived in that brewery since practically Abraham Lincoln's day and just put them in there to see what would grow along with the more standard inoculation. And the same thing at our brewery in Cincinnati. The brewery in Cincinnati is 80 some years old. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of just living microbiological history that we thought, let's put it in and see what happens. It's lived in beer. So, uh, and you're, you're gonna get a, a relatively homogeneous set of microorganisms wherever you are in the world. Um, it's basically the same stuff grows in beer. 
there are some, you know, you might get a different strain of Pediococcus or Lactobacillus uh, or, you know, Acetobacillus uh, or Britannomyces, but it's roughly the same stuff that grows in beer all over the world. I mean, there is only a limited set of organisms that can grow in beer. As all of you know, when God made the world, he or she made nothing harmful to human beings that can grow in beer. You probably know, but uh, God meant us to drink beer. <laughs> it's not clear God meant us to drink water because there's all kind of nasty shit that grows in water. You know, in, in the third world, the biggest source of, of mortality is all these waterborne diseases like cholera and typhus and hepatitis C and gastroenteritis. Uh, the beer is safe, though. Nobody ever got any of those diseases from beer um, because beer is quite an unusual environment in terms of its pH and its ethanol content. And that screens out the vast, vast majority of microorganisms on the planet. Um, even, you know, of course, our little friend yeast is uh, technically it's a unicellular fungus of which there are probably in this room two to 500 different varieties of unicellular fungus floating around in this room. Um, tea, uh, because of the way it's made and fermented, will often have over uh, 100 different forms of fungus on it. The mycology of simple uh, foods like that shows an enormous range of organisms, but only a tiny, tiny fraction can grow in beer. So it's relatively safe to let it go. Um, you're probably not going to get anything. You know, you're definitely not going to get anything that has health hazards. At least it hasn't happened in 12,000 years of brewing history. So you can sort of let it rip and get infected. Um, it's not going to be that bad. It'll give you interesting flavors. And so that's, and, and the wood harbors those things, allows them to grow, allows you continuity across, you know, fills of uh, the tanks and gives you some flavor consistency. And it's particularly good for growing Britannomyces, um, which, you know, of course, is uh, the bane of most people who ferment things, wineries have been burned down when they got uh, you know, pervasively infected with Britannomyces. But Britannomyces you know, works very, very slowly and uh, I'm told is capable of living off of, uh, the off of cellulose. The cellulose molecules that make up the wood are just long sugar chains. I um, mean, wood is just very long uh, difficult to break chains of sugars. And I'm told that the, the brett can actually nibble on the ends of these uh, long carbohydrate chains that we call cellulose. So it's particularly good at harboring those things. The other thing that we use the wood to do um, is this long, slow microoxidation which you won't get from a metal tank. And um, what that, we use that to do is to 
basically complete this kind of chain reaction of things that happen um, over about a year in the wood. I mean, essentially, when you think of the organisms, okay, uh, you've got this little tag team thing going on. Um, you take your wort and you put yeast in it. And the yeast will turn the sugars into ethanol. Um, and then you've got uh, acetic acid bacteria that will turn the ethanol into vinegar. And now you've got vinegar, which isn't a great flavor element, but if you slowly oxidize it, you will get, uh, it'll turn basalmic. I mean, we'll taste it later on when we get to uh, some of the other beers, but you will slowly turn it basalmic. And that's one strain, if you will, of barrel aging. The next one we're gonna taste um, is really, is the, the second strain, which is aging beer in used spirits barrels. And with this, we are going to be tasting something unique. Um, you are gonna be tasting history. Um, this is 1994 Samuel Adams Triplebach. This is beer that is almost old enough to drink itself. Um, it actually, some of it uh, was put in barrels in 1992. So uh, it is, uh, some of this could drink itself. And this was the first barrel-aged beer in not only the United States, but as far as I know in the world, the in terms of taking a beer and aging it in used spirits barrels. As obvious as that seems today, um, when I first started doing it in 1992, nobody had ever done it before. Nobody had ever aged beer as far as I could tell, in used spirits barrels. Um, and in the US, there, were, uh, there was very strong reason. Everybody thought it was illegal because uh, our friends at what was then the BATF do not allow you to co-mingle different classes of alcohol because there's different tax rates. So uh, liquor has one tax rate and beer has a much lower tax rate and you weren't allowed to co-mingle two different tax classes. So you can't, uh, you, know, you can't sell beer made with spirits because they don't know what to charge you for it. It has no excise tax rate. But I had this uh, sort of epiphany, and I'll tell you where it came from. Um, Triple Bach was the first beer uh, to ever get over about 14% alcohol. In 1992, um, the Craft beer had existed with sort of one uh, innovation technique, which was basically taking styles from the old world, classic styles, many of which were dying out in the old world, um, whether they were porters or Hefeweizens or double box or Scotch ales or ESBs or IPAs, uh, and recreating those styles here in the United States. That was what drove craft brewing through the 80s uh, into the 90s. And I got bored with that because it really became quite easy. If you want to bring out a new beer, you'd, you'd just find something from Europe that nobody was making here and you'd make it. Um, and the epiphany was that somebody had actually created all those styles. 
You know, they didn't exist when God made dirt and trees and rocks. They were the creation of uh, the restless human spirit of exploration. And so my thought was, why not apply that to craft brewing and to uh, what we're doing here in the United States? And nobody had ever made beer over 14% alcohol. And it was sort of considered this sound barrier. So this was the first beer that got uh, over 14% alcohol. It weighs in at about 18%. So it didn't just nudge it. It just broke the sound barrier for beer. And so why don't, why don't we taste it? I mean, you can smell it. It just fills the room. But this is uh, probably the oldest beer you'll ever taste. And to me, it's just explosively aromatic. Um, as it's aged, uh, it's gone more to port, I think. Um, I get a lot of port character in here. It wasn't aged in port barrels. Um, there was no port killed in the making of this beer. But at this level of alcohol, the yeast begins to make those port-like flavors. These were aged in our first spirit barrels, which were Jack Daniels barrels. I mean, that was, and essentially how I came to do that, as the alcohol got this high, um, it became a flavor element in the beer uh, and began, uh, at this level of alcohol, you be, I was getting this sort of ferocious ethanol attack on your palate. I mean, 18% ethanol is harsh and it's hot and, I, and boozy. And I wanted to find a way to take that hot booziness down. And I thought about it and I couldn't really figure it out. And then one day I was at Home Depot, um, where great thoughts come, I guess. Um, but I was looking at these uh, piles uh, of planters that they had for sale. And of course, they were used bourbon barrels cut in half. And they were 10 bucks. And you know, uh, a new oak barrel at that time was like 200 bucks. And the light went on. I thought, oh, wait a minute. Um, I don't need to figure out how to take the heat and the booziness down. A bunch of illiterate backwoodsmen in the center of Kentucky figured out how to do it 200 years ago. They were, I, I grew up in southern Ohio right across the border, and there's still, in Brown County, there were still people making moonshine. And uh, they figured out that you could distill corn into this nasty stuff. Um, but if you took an oak barrel, charred the inside of it, and put it in there for a while, you could mellow out that nasty moonshine. I mean, the difference between, you know, white dog, they call it, or moonshine, and bourbon is simply the aging time in the barrel. That's what mellows it, smooths it out. So I thought, well, I'm going to take this boozy beer that I have, and I'm going to age it in these used barrels, because um, at that time, less so now, there was a huge glut of used bourbon barrels. Um, once a bourbon barrel is used, the first time, it can never be reused for bourbon. When you're aging whiskey in the United States, you have to do it in new oak. 
So there is this flood of barrels coming out of uh, the, the whiskey distilleries with nothing to do with them. I mean, who wants them? Um, the only real use was shipping them to Scotland because Scotch whiskey uh, is aged in either used sherry barrels or used bourbon barrels. That's where all those Jack Daniels barrels were going, the Jim Beam barrels, the old granddad. Um, they were going to Scotland, and the Scotch couldn't take enough of them, so they had to cut them up and sell them to Home Depot for planters. So uh, they were dirt cheap. I called up uh, Bluegrass Cooperage, who was the barrel vendor, trying to deal with this glut of barrels. They were thrilled uh, to send us a couple of truckloads of them, and we put triple Bach in those. Uh, but first, uh, I had to deal with the law. And uh, I was really worried that they would not make, that, that this was illegal, which is why it hadn't been done before. Uh, and we had a really good lawyer down here, um, a guy named Ray Williams. Ray was a good old boy from Alabama, uh, could talk to the BATF. He said, Jim, uh, let's go in on Friday at 4 p.m. because nobody's going to want to hang around. Uh, so that's what we did. He took me in there on Friday at 4 p.m. They at first said, I don't think you can do this. And I said, well, I'm just, I'm buying barrels that are in commerce. Um, these, they said, well, they got some whiskey in them. I said, well, you know, I can just go buy them at Home Depot. Why can't I buy them from the broker and use them? You have released them into commerce. They are no longer under your jurisdiction. What's illegal about me using them uh, to age this? And they thought about it, and the, the guy wanted to get out of there. So, uh, and Ray, being smart, had all the forms ready for him to sign. So as soon as the guy said, yeah, I think I'd be okay, he said, great, sign here. <laughs> and we got out of there, and that's where the practice of aging beer in used spirits barrels began. Uh, it was 1992 or 93 when they allowed us to do that. And that's where Triple Bach came. And that's, you know, when you look at barrel aging in the U.S. in used spirits barrels, that's when it started. Nobody was doing it before then. Uh, so thankfully somebody at the TTB uh, wanted to get over to Annapolis and avoid the traffic, and he signed off on this. Are there questions or comments about this? I mean, I'm interested in the flavor descriptors, and it has mellowed. In the beginning, what I wasn't really good at is getting the autolyzed yeast flavors out of here, because this level of alcohol is lethal to the majority of the yeast. So uh, originally, it had a kind of yeasty, meaty, umami, savory, almost soy character, which is still a bit in here, but uh, it slowly changed into this, kind of, to me, this port-like character. What do you say? It's chocolate port. Yeah, there's, I get a little cocoa in here. Um, you know, it was complete trial and error. I mean, nobody had ever done this before. Uh, it was very cool. I felt like the Starship Enterprise. You know, let's take beer where no beer has gone before and see what weird adventures and life forms we're going to encounter. So it was mainly just tasting it, 
Um, I was really focused on getting the booziness uh, out of it. And, and it was also just a lot of accidental stuff because <laughs> Triple Bach was like a Christo project where half of it is the actual art of the creation and the other half is making that art exist in a real world of red tape and administrative regulations and packaging requirements and everything. So uh, we, uh, it was a bunch of different things. It's finished with a sherry cork um, and it still ferments in the bottle. So we had to get this capsule. Uh, I had to find one would, would expand and contract. So it slowly over the years, as the gas builds up, it pushes up that cherry cork. The gas gets released through uh, this capsule, and then it goes back down. So it was, and I wanted something black, but you can't make black bottles because you can't inspect them for glass inclusions. That's why you don't find black glass. Uh, even like Freshenay, they, they paint it on after they make the bottle. But we found somebody who could make these cobalt blue bottles, and when you filled them with triple Bach, they looked black. So they were, and then I had to find some way to fill all the damn things. I put cherry corks on them and fill them, and we found this guy out in California, a crazy guy, some of you may have heard of him, um, named Fred Franzia. And, he does all kind of bizarre things. So he signed on to do this. We actually shipped him the barrels and then Fred filled them uh, with these sherry corks. And then we had them outlawed in like 15 states because of the alcohol content. Mothers Against Drunk Driving came out against it because you know it's, uh, it's 250 milliliters. It's a small bottle with a high alcohol content. And the story they put out was, well, children are going to be putting this in their backpacks. And it's like, are you kidding me? It's $100 a case. I mean, they can put a little nip of vodka that costs 39 cents back then in their backpack. I don't think they're going to buy a $4 bottle of Sam Adams Triple Bach. But, oh, it's a good question. I think we have like a pallet or two. So there were 24 bottles per case. So probably 1,200 bottles, between 1,200 and 2,000. There's some wholesalers that have a little bit. Um, retailers, some of them have kept it. So there's, and we just, you know, we'll release it a little bit for special events like this. And I hope that we continue to have them for the rest of my life. Uh, it's very cool for me just to watch this uh, you know, weird child grow up you know, and mature. And I mean, it's like you know, kids, they come into this world as screaming pieces of bad plumbing. And then they grow into functioning humans like all of us. So it's kind of cool watching this happen with a beer. It's out of its teenage years now. I think it's going to make it. Yeah? Oh, it was less than a year, less than a year. I mean, it was really in there, um, as it was talking about the other functions. Um, and aging in a used spirit barrel kind of does two things that you don't get from you know, the big standard uh, wooden tons that are part of Belgian brewing. Um, you get two things. You get 
whatever liquid is left in there from, you know, when you, I mean, you basically empty it when you get it, but there's something in the wood that is not wood. Uh, and also the wood in there has been altered. So it's not like, you know, you're putting it in um, a, a wine barrel or a standard whiskey barrel, you know, when it began. You're not getting, you're getting a different vanilla from the wood. You know, uh, the barrels that we're using range from 3 to 12 years old. So, uh, and they've had 120 uh, proof alcohol in them. So that beats up the wood and changes the chemistry of the wood. So we're getting both whatever residue liquid is and then whatever the wood gives up. And there's quite a bunch of stuff left in that wood. Um, you could you know, put uh, you know, uh, white dog in it again, be illegal, but you would get some very interesting, unusual flavors from a second use of them. And some of the scotch producers have been able to do that. You'll get just different flavors. Any? Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. There is a lot of, uh, like, you know, the, the Hungarian cherries, those like Hungarian uh, black cherries. Yes, there is a lot of that in here. There's a general, I get, uh, in addition to the port, I get a lot of dark fruit. Uh, maybe even, you know, uh, even prunes. Um, which are just dried plums. You call them prunes and it sounds gross, but uh, dried plum uh, in a, so that some of that dried red fruit note I get in here. Yeah, some of that. Yes, that's right, which is weird coming from fermented malt. Um, and there, yep, and there's a little bit, we use some maple syrup at the end of the fermentation because the yeast is pretty well uh, attenuated. I mean, it is, the, the yeast is swimming around in 16% alcohol beer, getting it to ferment. Uh, typical malt sugars at that point is very difficult. Maple syrup is a lot of glucose, fructose, very simple uh, sugars that are much more accessible to this yeast in its very weakened state. Um, you don't get much left because the yeast ferments it all. So if I tell people it's got maple syrup, everybody tastes it. But uh, if you don't know that, I don't really get it in the flavor. It needs to be suggested. So, yeah. Any other, just any other flavor notes before we go on to the next beer? Yep. Oh, that's cool. Different in what way? Okay. Sweeter. That's interesting because, um, you know, there will be stuff settling out of it. Um, I'm going to guess, you know, a lot of it's proteins um, from the malt, but there's probably some tannins. Um, pruny? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I've gotten that. Yeah. And it's, 
you know, when I give people this, nobody, nobody recognizes it as beer. It is completely unbeer-like. But it is beer. Uh, I know because we had to charge a nickel deposit on the bottles. <laughs> and I don't think we got any back. Uh, cool. Uh, let's go to the next beer. Um, so this is, this is a product of, you know, used spirit barrel, that kind of wooden, uh, that kind of barrel aging. This one is more in the Belgian style. And this is uh, Sam Am's New World Triple. Um, it's a classic Belgian triple. And uh, this uses a little bit of something I'm going to introduce you to, which is, it's a technical brewer's term. It's called KMF. Um, and it stands for Cosmic Mother Funk. Um, this is the stuff that is the product of the wild aging in the big wooden tons, the three, 4,000 gallon tons. Uh, and there is a relatively sm small percentage of it in here. You could think of it as a flavor addition. I mean, we're basically using um, the product of all these weird microorganisms as a flavor addition to give us uh, some of that balsamic taste and then some bright fruity taste. And it's highly acidic, which uh, one of the functions of, to me, of high acidity is to push bright fruit notes forward, which we'll see uh, as we go through this beer. And then the next two beers will even highlight that more. So to me, I want this bright, fruity, slightly floral, soft, maybe even uh, like a little vanilla note in it. Um, and the function of the KMF here, it's at a threshold level. I don't get uh, what we're going to get in uh, the next two beers. So the KMF just makes it bright and fruity. And then we can bring the next one. Wait, it says you added passion fruit and spices on the outside. So was it? Oh, it's just like notes of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. You scared me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not, okay. Yeah, yeah. Those are the flavor notes, that fruitiness, that brightness. Yeah, and that is simply a product of the various microorganisms in here. They will produce those passion fruit, uh, sort of bright, weird, uh, even I get sometimes a little mango, um, guava, sort of tropical fruit in here. And to me, that's part of the brewer's art is to make these flavors without the actual fruit because they're more interesting coming from the fermentation than just coming from the simple fruit. Does everybody have the next beer or are we waiting for the next one? Okay, okay. Let's pour the next one, which the next one is, uh, it's Samuel Adams Tetravis uh, and it's a, uh, stylistically, it would be a Belgian quad. And what I 
think will be, oh, great. Oh, that's all right. I'll be good. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. What I think it was uh, interesting uh, for people who've had lots of Belgian quads is uh, as an American quad, it has something you typically don't get from a Belgian quad, which is it's fresh. And it ha I believe with the possible exception of triple Bach, there are almost, for my palate, I don't think beer improves with age. I, uh, and this may be a good example of it. Typically, you know, people, Belgian quads are sort of 10% alcohol. They're generally, you know, when you buy them in the US, they're six months to two or three years old because uh, they don't sell very fast, they don't turn over very fast. And there is a big difference between uh, a fresh quad and uh, one that is six to, you know, 36 months old. So with this, if, if you had like a, you know, a classic uh, Belgian one, the difference you would notice to me is this is much brighter, fresher, there's a lot more fruit. Um, it's not oxidized and suppressed. Uh, and to me, that's a really good flavor element. You don't get that slightly cardboardy, uh, oxidized sugar taste. To me, it's bright and fresh and fruity and even a little floral. And I think that's better. So uh, my personal belief is very, very, very few beers improve with age. And probably 95% of what is commonly assumed to improve with age, I don't think it does. I think it just loses uh, brightness, freshness, and gets tamped down, subdued. Uh, to me, the difference is like listening to live music versus listening to the same music through your iPhone. It's the same music, but you've just lost all the, the high notes from it. And uh, so personally, I prefer a fresh quad over one that's you know, seen age on it. The alcohol? Uh, I think it's about 10 as well. Yeah, the fruitiness suppresses that uh, alcohol. Because to me, alcohol is generally not a good flavor element. Mostly uh, when you, I mean, most of drinking is hiding the alcohol. Whether, you know, it's in beer or if you're drinking vodka, you know, it's always mixed with something else so that, or tequila or whatever. You know, most alcohol is consumed underneath other flavors. And then finally, we'll do uh, the fourth beer, um, which is, uh, let's see, this will be Stony Brook, the next one. And Stony Brook uh, is charmingly named after the subway station next to our brewery in Boston on the beautiful Orange Line. Uh, and if anybody's ever lived in Boston, it's probably uh, the, the scariest of all the the different lines, it doesn't run through the Back Bay or to Cambridge or anything, it runs through uh, what used to be 
um, you know, the harsher communities, uh, which is where our brewery has been. And this is about 50% KMF. So this is a big dose of the cosmic mother funk. I can do it. It's fun. It's one of my few pleasures. So, thank you. Well, it's a secret, but it's in the low double digits. Yeah. Yeah, New World was single digits. So you get a little more of that red fruit. Yeah, yep. And even a little vinegar. And you'll get a bunch of it in the last beer, which is Stony Brook Red. I mean, it is, it's its own style of beer, but if you had to categorize it, it would be like a, uh, a Flanders Red. Um, there's a, Lost Abbey makes a wonderful, uh, I think it's called Poppy Red. Um, and that's the same style. And here you're going to get that vinegar. And it's a basalmic vinegar, but you even get it in the aroma. That acetic uh, sort of aroma, which is an oxidized vinegar. It takes about a year in the big wooden tons, a year of micro-oxidation to take the acetic out of it and smooth it out uh, into a balsamic. If anybody ever had like 10-year-old balsamic vinegar, and it's not vinegar at all anymore. It's this gorgeous, beautiful liquid. That's what we're doing here. The exact same reaction is making alcohol, then uh, anaerobically turning it into vinegar, and then slowly oxidizing the vinegar to sweet. You like it? Yeah. I mean, it definitely has that acetic. I mean, you can feel it. You get it on your tongue. To me, it's a wine substitute. It's a great bottle with, like, you know, red meat, steak, that kind of thing, stew. It cuts through heaviness and uh, is almost like a red wine of beer. No, the last triple Bach was made in 1997. It evolved um, out of triple Bach in 1999. Uh, we got the alcohol up to about 20%, and we took out a lot of that uh, autolyzed yeast, and that was the first beer over 20% alcohol, which is called Millennium. We made 3,000 bottles of that because we were really just pushing the yeast uh, and sort of breeding this ninja yeast that could tolerate higher and higher alcohol levels. So it's taken us 20 years basically to breed very alcohol tolerant yeast that takes years to do its work. And, and Millennium then evolved into Utopius. So Triplebach ultimately, you know, created Utopius, which is now, uh, some of the barrels are like 31, 32% alcohol. We tend to blend them down, because it's not about pushing alcohol per se, it's about creating flavor. And in terms of barrels, we're now using this enormous range of barrels, which we will blend. So uh, now we're using bourbon barrels, 
were using scotch barrels that began as bourbon barrels, scotch barrels that began as sherry barrels, we're using sherry barrels, we're using port barrels. Um, one year we used a lot of Madeira barrels to get some really nice red fruit. Um, we're using rum barrels, which give a sort of cocoa, sort of fig note to the beer. So uh, this barrel aging thing has really opened up uh, any kind of barrel that you might use. The jalapeno, the Tabasco ones were nasty. So <laughs> I would not recommend that. Um, but, and we've used a few tequila barrels. Not, wasn't quite happy with them. Oh, um, when we make Utopias, we're blending from a library of barrels that go back to 1992. And some of them are lower alcohol. Yep. Yeah. No, we've used them multiple times. They keep changing. Um, and, you know, it is a bigger scale, but it's really just more barrels. Um, as there really is no way to scale it up, um, like using huger and huger barrels or anything like that. It is just more racks of barrels um, that you, maybe you go one or two pallets higher, but it's just more barrels. So it doesn't really scale. What it does do, it gives you, as you've got more out there, it's like a larger library of books to, to choose from. And so we will blend from all kinds of barrels. And Utopias can never be the same from year to year because the barrels are older. We could not reproduce the 2011 Utopias. Um, it's like you know, Heraclitus told us, you can't step in the same river twice. That's the same principle behind Utopias. It is unique with each release. Yeah? The next frontier. You know, it's a really good question. Um, and, you know, I've always gotten in trouble with other craft brewers for doing things. Um, when we came out with barrel aging, I was uh, criticized for uh, doing that because it was blurring the lines with spirits, um, it was non-traditional, uh, so it was at that time considered a bad thing. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you examples which everybody will think are bad things now. Now, maybe in 20 years it'll be like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, I don't. I'm not quite sure, but when I think about like weird stuff, um, here's one. Uh, again, which you'll probably all think this is a bad thing, but today it is possible to make a 18 to 20% um, beer, which is clear um, and has essentially the flavor profile of a very, very smooth vodka with a significant mouthfeel. It is possible to do that um, through uh, interesting fermentation techniques and then ion separation uh, at the end of the process. And think about what one might do with that. You know, uh, think about using that uh, for 
long, cold, slow infusion of fruits, of you know, spices, of food elements. You know, one, you know, you could make something really cool out of that. It, and you know, it'll, a lot of people won't like that. Um, that's a possibility. That's pretty interesting to me. Um, we've got a lot of stuff going on now and it's kind of on the back burner. That's a possibility. Um, again, uh, you know, I, I, it's not beer, but I think there are a lot of cool things that can be done with cider. And cider is a very traditional beverage, was bigger than beer until the 1850s. Uh, and I think there is a lot of experimentation and cool things that can be done with that. And, and it, you know, it's a very natural home to me for craft brewers to do cool, traditional, interesting things in a wide open area because you know, it's only been recently that people have been making really cool ciders in the US. And we can, uh, you know, and it existed in Europe and now US craft brewers are getting into it and we're innovative. We do cool stuff. You know, we're not boxed in. You know, we, we're Americans. We just do this stuff. The Europeans like get all tangled up about it. Um, so I think that can be very interesting. I guess what I would say is you cannot put boundaries around the energy and creativity of this amazing community of craft brewers that would not exist without all you guys. You know, uh, if you didn't drink our beer, we couldn't make it. So uh, I think we're probably out of time. And I maybe I just, uh, one or two more quick questions. Okay. But I just want to thank you for enabling all of us to do what we love. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I I had a quick question again. Uh, so the barrel aging. The whole thing with the bourbon and the liquor is the seasons that move it, you know, expanding yes. and tracting through the barrel. But with these beers, you're doing it less than a year. How are you getting it to move through the wood? Are you like heating and cooling it or anything? No, or? no, you don't really need that. And in fact, uh, well, when we select barrels now, we work with a, a Rick master um, who's the barrel guy who manages the barrel houses. At, at, uh, one of our partners, Buffalo Trace Brewing. And there's a big difference in the barrels, actually, in that Rick House. The ones in the center um, don't have that much. The temperature change in the center of the Rick House isn't that much. So it's, it doesn't need, I mean, there's, you know, it goes in and out of the wood. You got pressure differences um, as it absorbs alcohol or takes alcohol away. I don't know, the full, physics of it, but it works fine at a relatively constant temperature. We keep them, you know, low 60s, and that seems to work for us. I mean, if you're a home brewer, get a barrel, just put it in your basement. Don't worry about it. Maybe time for one half of a question. Anybody have half a question? <laughs> I haven't yet. Cheers. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you, big hand for Jim Cook, founder of Boston Beer Company. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Enjoy the night.
Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2014, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2014, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.